We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. The thought that I wanted to share with you that I was talking about earlier, let me see if I can say it, and it'll be kind of a um, stream of consciousness version of it with, uh, a, a, you know, that when you have a document and it has the big um, watermark draft behind it, Okay, that's what this is, all right? A draft thought here, a work in progress. Sometimes I have a, um, a concern about my own m- management of ministry with people in this sense. Uh, I'll give you a kind of an illustration. Somebody comes to me and has a deep concern about a situation, say they're coming from another church. And I have this, I don't know, version of patience where I will listen and then they can bring more back and listen and I, they can bring more back and listen. And, I, and uh, it's good in a way, but there's another way in which it's not good. And the way in which it's good is that I feel like I have to do this kind of listening ministry because it gives people a chance to unladen their heart. I mean, I know the pain of moving from one church to another and church splits from, you know, listening to things way back. Thankfully, we haven't had major issues here, although we've had some in the past 20 years. Um, But those things are very burdensome for people. And there's some need for them to share their hearts about these matters. But at the same time, if I don't rein that tendency in a little bit and say, okay, we've addressed that issue now. We're not going to keep complaining about it. We're not going to continue down that path. And I feel that, and sometimes, frankly, I have failed in that regard because it's easier to just say nothing and keep listening than it is to cause some, a potential offense by saying, okay, no, please stop, don't say any more. You're getting into the gossip territory now or you're, 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 you're in sin. That immediacy of the, of the uh, so-called offense, could I say it that way, of saying, hey, don't, let's not do that anymore, could be well overcompensated uh, by or could be better, I'll say it this way, that could be better causing that kind of offense by saying, look, stop now, could be better than the long-term effects of allowing somebody to continue to hold the bitternesses and the burdens and the anger and the upsetness about a situation. You say, look, stop, and then just take care of it right now. Let bygones be bygones. You're not going to fix that church or that situation or that thing or whatever, And the failure that I feel like could be a charge to me is that 
the long-term effects of that are far worse than if I just said, look, stop now. Do you understand what I'm trying to get at? Yeah, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Um, And so if you're allowed, if you as the person who's unburdening your heart is allowed to continue in that, you end up repeating that cycle over and over again. I've seen it now. Having been in ministry, you know, you might look at me and say, oh, that can't be the case. But having been involved in Christian ministry for 23 years, that is indeed a a reality that happens. And people take the pattern that they developed back there and they repeat it over here and they're destined to take it unless, unless I say stop and unless they listen. Okay? Um, a, a smaller version of that can be seen in sometimes, especially when you have our fellowship meetings, the guys on Saturday or some other things, and we get to talking about politics. Now, that offends some people. Because, you know, there is a smaller percent, there's a small percentage or a, a minority of people who take one view in this church and a majority probably that take another view. But it's easier for me to kind of let that go a little too long, right, and not say stop. But then the fruit that might be born of that later on is that somebody's frustrated because they think, well, this is just, this is not the case at all, but this is just a political uh, church. It's, it is easy for us, however, all of us, to get involved and tied up in temporal matters, isn't it? Temporal matters. We lose sight of the fact that there are people dying and, may I say frankly, going to hell, actually going to Hades, and then they're going to be transferred from there to hell, but you get my point, okay? Um, and we're talking about you know, the price of oil or something, you know, cry me a river, you know, yeah, I don't like it either. But at some point, I've got a balance between saying stop earlier and stop later and dealing with the consequences if you don't say stop until later, okay? That's another example of the same thing. That's why I was saying this is a draft uh, thought because I connected those two kinds of things in my mind, long-term over years and shorter term over minutes and, and hours and, and, and even potentially years as well. And so that's just a, a little thought for you as to one of the things that I have thought about, think about, and uh, evaluate. Have I done the right thing in helping people? You know, it's easy to not do the now thing, not to say stop now, because you don't want to lose somebody right away. You know, there is that tendency. And, you know, I mean, in other things, it's been easier for me to say that. So, for example, one of the areas that I say no very quickly is when somebody says, are you a King James-only church? And can we come to your church? And I say, well, (laughs) you're not going to find any aid or comfort here on that immediately. And that just pushes that kind of person off, which is what I want to do for your sake, because I don't want that kind of divisiveness to be brought into the church. I just cut it right off at the, what do you say, at the knees, at the feet. I mean, right, right down to nothing. Um, so it's that kind of situation, or those kinds of situations that I'm thinking about and saying, okay, in every one of these different kinds of cases, 
how long do I let it go before I exercise spiritual leadership and say, look, we need to take a different tack now. We need to go in a different direction. And uh, so how long do you bear with? You know, this is a related thought. You know, I, I thought of my, um, my own upbringing, and I'm not trying to throw my parents under the bus, but I, I've seen parents who are far more patient than they were. But I thank God that they weren't. Because I think patience sometimes, which is a virtue that Christian parents have, can be taken too long and enables somebody to continue in a stupid course of life. And so then the question, okay, when do you kind of not impatiently let your patience run out, but when do you kind of say, look, my patience is done now, we're moving on to the next phase of life beyond patience. It's now discipline. It's now consequences. Same principle again, right? So at what time do you apply that? You know, you, you have only a limited amount of time with raising your kids, and you can't be infinitely patient. Some people are so patient, they let them go off into all kinds of things, and they, they just let them run amok. You know, so I'm not up here uh, advertising for, uh, or advocating, rather, for you to be impatient people. I'm not saying that. But there is a virtue in not taking a lot of guff for a long time. You know what I'm saying? Another part of my draft thought. Okay, so enough. Yes. Many conversations. Amen. Yeah. That's right. Right, yes. Right, Mike is saying that, you know, when, when we have con- conversations back and forth and I'm able to take him to the Word, sometimes, I mean, the Word is like a sword. Other times it's, it's like a scalpel. And you just bring a little Bible verse in there and somebody's like, oh, yeah, right. Uh, that's what God said. So since I believe what God says and I know God personally and I have a personal relationship with him, then, wow, yeah, that, that fits the situation. It helps me to kind of get my bearings back, you know, find your orientation. You're kind of like a guy out in, on a spacewalk in outer space twirling around like this until you kind of get your hands onto the space station, the Word of God, and you say, okay, now I know which way is up and which way is down, and I've got, I've got a firm grip on things. So, all right, uh, enough of my draft thinking. Uh, rough draft thinking, and on to the message that I prepared, and it's in less of a drafty form. Matthew chapter 21, if you would please tonight. Hopefully that those thoughts were helpful to you. That maybe maybe it's a little abstract. It's it's not abstract to me. It's very real to me uh, to ask God for wisdom about that. Matthew 21. We've just finished. 20, where two blind men received their sight, where we learned about greatness is found in service, uh, the prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection, the, the workers in the vineyard, and, and what that meant with in, terms, in terms of eternal life. But now we've come to the closure of Jesus' kind of broad public ministry, 
and we're coming to the final week, which is called by many theologians the Passion Week, the week of suffering, the Holy Week, some will call it. And for the parallel passage to Matthew 21, 1 through 11, you can look in Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. So it's there in all four of the Gospels. And let me read the verses, and then let's see how far we can get tonight with the commentary I made earlier. We won't get fully through this, but uh, the Scripture says this in chapter 21 and verse 1. And this, uh, just keep in mind, my friends, this is like you're reading from your college history textbook, only it's more accurate than your college history textbook, okay? When you go to college and you read a textbook, you're like, oh, okay, that's, that's facts, that's truth. Maybe it is. This is history, okay? Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt the foal of a donkey. Notice that prophecy that is given, that God promises that a king is going to come, and this is a sign for you to to know who this king is. He's going to come on a donkey and a colt the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. All right, locate yourself now near Jerusalem, near this village called Bethphage. Uh, some various spellings there, uh, as sometimes happens with proper nouns. And then also the Mount of Olives. Okay, we're near the Mount of Olives. The city of Jerusalem is bordered on the east by the Kidron Valley, which separates it from the Mount of Olives. Just If you're in Jerusalem, just beyond the Temple Mount, down the valley, the Kidron Valley, and up to the heights of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is at its highest is 2,641 feet above sea level. So it's not like the Himalayan mountains, okay? We understand that, but... Uh, I bet you if I put you at the top of that mountain and said, okay, now you walk down into the valley and then you go back up to Jerusalem, which is at an elevation of about 2,300 feet, and you had to go from 2,600 down to the base of the Kidron Valley, 1,400 feet below sea level, and then back up again, you might say, that felt like I walked down and up a mountain today. Just maybe. That's what it was like, the topography there. Uh, I'm not saying that 
you know, is 1,400 feet below sea level the whole way through the Kidron Valley because it's not. From the top of the, Ki- the top of the Kidron Valley down to the bottom is a drop of 4,000 feet. That's almost, a, I mean, that's three-quarters of a mile, isn't it? That's pretty significant. Now, Jesus uh, is not merely needing a ride when I say that. Can I get a ride from you? He's not merely needing a ride to traverse the territory we've just mentioned, although that would be helpful. Instead, what was the need of the hour? Not for a ride. The need was to fulfill Scripture. Zechariah 9, a king is coming on a colt, on a foal of a donkey. So he sent his disciples into the nearby village, perhaps that was Bethphage itself, since that's mentioned in the text, to get a donkey's colt on which he would ride. He told them to bring the donkey and the colt. Perhaps the donkey, uh, maybe the older, maybe the colt's mother, the mare, uh, was you know used to help calm that colt and help to uh, guide them into the city. Another text in, in these parallels doesn't mention that no one had ever sat on that colt before. You ever tried to do that to a donkey or to a horse? <laughs> to break a horse or to break a donkey to allow a, to be saddled? That's a, that's a task. Well, anyway, I don't get into all of that. We're just looking at the text and the story as it's, as it's recorded for us in history here. The disciples did as they were instructed, and they brought the donkey According to John 12, where this is, they did not know that they were fulfilling Scripture when they did this. The Lord just tells them, go get something for me to ride on. Later on, they understood, oh, we actually did that to him, for him. What a special feeling would you have in your heart if God used you to fulfill a scriptural prediction and through you it part in part came to pass, to know you were in directly involved in the fulfillment of the scriptures of the Old Testament. Well, I could stop here, and I'll just mention it for sake of interest. You can be involved in the fulfillment of scripture. Every time you're obedient to the scriptures, you're involved in its fulfillment. Is that a special feeling? Every time you help someone come to know Christ... You're involved in the scriptures. Every time you do a work for God, Jesus promised, he said, uh, when I go to the Father, greater works than the works that I do, you will do. You know that? Greater works. Greater in, in uh, quantity, greater in time, because the Lord only had a limited amount of time on the earth and a limited number of people that he touched by far, there are some people by far who have touched as many and more lives as Jesus did personally touching them. You know what I'm saying? Uh, not that, I mean, obviously all of it's because of him, but throughout the course of church history, the geographical scope of the works of God and the temporal scope of the works of God has been beyond what Jesus accomplished in his human aspect, his human flesh, his human life on this earth. So greater works, and you are able you are privileged to be involved in those works. So have recognized that special feeling of being able to be involved in God's work in this world. So they brought the colt, the donkey. They covered the colt. They put Jesus on it. The text says put him, put him on them. And then he began his journey into the city. 
It tells us in verse 5 of the quotation, and, and this quotation is from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Very well-known portion of Scripture. The Apostle Matthew treats Zechariah 9 as uh, a prediction of a future event that would occur. And I am just uh, making my way over there to Zechariah 9 in my Bible, just a few pages back, really, from Matthew. And I'll just read it from Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Now, that's not mentioned in Matthew's quote. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then it says in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You didn't realize that in verse 9 is the first coming and verse 10 of Zechariah 9 is the second coming, separated by 2,000 years now between those two comings, but that's laid out side by side in the prophet. So the triumphal entry is a fulfillment of, of the prediction made in Zechariah 9. It's an event in history that precisely matches the prediction of the future event to Zechariah's time. Let me say it the reverse. Zechariah predicts an event would occur. Matthew records that event did, in fact, occur some hundreds, hundreds of years later. Now, Zechariah records the prophet here speaking this as an encouragement to the people of Israel who were in, uh, facing great enemies in uh, the end time. They would have an even greater deliverance than these great enemies. You can read chapter 9 in Zechariah more fully to see this. A great set of enemies is going to give way to an even greater deliverance, and they should be very, very encouraged and happy about this. And so thus the words rejoice and shout. Rejoice and shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Expressions of exuberant triumph over their enemies. The character of the king to come was marked by, from what I can tell, one main factor. What does it mean or what is symbolized by riding into town on a donkey? Give me one word that you think of when you think of a donkey, riding in on a donkey, as opposed to some other means that you could come in on. You've all got the word. It's humility. He wasn't being carried by men in a, um, what do you call that thing when, uh, when they carry a king or a queen on a, a, a platform? You know what I'm saying? That kind of, it wasn't that. He wasn't riding in on a white stallion, majestic and regal. He will do that. Revelation 19, 11, uh, maybe not 11, Revelation 19, just leave it at that. You'll read it there. It says that, uh, that uh, the one called faithful and true, the word of God is going to come on a white horse. And of course, there's another one who came on a white horse, and that's an er- earlier in Revelation, that's the Antichrist. He's going to try to come and emulate what Jesus would look like and trick deceive a lot of people. So he did not ride in on a huge white steed as a regal and conquering hero, but instead he came 
on a donkey. This actually matches well with how he came in the first place to this earth. Remember how he came in the stable of one such animal. In a lowly birth, no place in the inn, um, poor. His parents were not well off. You know that because they were given the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, uh, at least two of those to help them along the way. They, were, uh, they had to offer a couple of turtle doves instead of the normal larger size offering for the child and her purif- Mary's purification. He came in humility. He came much more lowly and, and less majestically than you might expect when it says, Behold, your king comes to you. Your king comes. And as we've said, yeah, it is Revelation 19.11. There, there is going to come a time when Jesus comes in a very imposing appearance as the king of kings, but that's not this time. Jesus enters with humility, symbolizing how he would be the humble servant of all by dying for sinners. And this is why we labor in, in our teaching in the Word to try to help us. One of the key, one of the normal aspects of, of human nature is pride. It's just built into us since Adam and Eve. You know, I see that fruit that it is, you know, it, it's desirable to make me wise, and I will know good and evil, and and I'll know better than God because he told me not to partake of that. But I, we get all these machinations in our head and we can justify almost any evil thing because of our pride. And the Lord is trying to teach us that his way is not the way of pride. It's not the way of the devil. It's not the, you know, he fell by pride. He, he fell in the condemnation of that, of that selfishness. Notice in the middle, I'm, I'm alluded to this already, but in the middle of Zechariah 9, it says he is just and having salvation. Remember that? It does not quote, uh, Matthew does not quote all of that in the middle of the verse. But that is this coming king. He is just, he does possess salvation. That's the point. He's not going to save Jerusalem this time from her enemies. He's going to save Jerusalem from her enemy sin and depravity and her broken relationship with God. And then in the end time in Zechariah 9, we're assured that he will smash those enemies that come against Jerusalem and he will rule from sea to sea. There will be a worldwide kingdom with a worldwide king. Okay, well, um, that takes us through the quotation in verse 5. Verse 6 says, So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They obeyed him, wonderful, as they should. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and sat him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road and cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. What we've spoken about was somehow, and I don't know how exactly, but somehow not lost on the crowds. Somehow they knew that Jesus made a credible claim to be king. What did they call him? Son of David. This is amazing. There has not not been a king on the throne in Jerusalem since who? Test your knowledge of history. 
I mean, you've got to go back to the, the eras of Zedekiah and Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin and all these guys in 587 B.C. and all that. And then, of course, they had governors and things, but not, not a Davidic king. It has been nearly six centuries, 600 years, and they're identifying this one as the son of David who's come. And they somehow knew the prophecy they didn't understand all of this, but they understood some of it. I mean, they even remembered, and um, remember when Herod asked, where's he going to be born who's called king of the Jews? And the scribes and the Pharisees said, what? Bethlehem, Ephratah, for out of you, remember, will come a ruler. And um, so they had some corporate knowledge of this Messiah and the crowd that was favorable to him. Uh, and they responded to him as one should respond to a king riding into town. There was a great crowd. Look at verse number eight. A very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. By the way, let me just make a cautionary note here. Some people say, well, look at the crowd. They welcomed him in on Sunday, and then they turn around and on Friday they want him killed. I don't think that's true. I think you have a situation where you have, like we have today, a divided nation. You have half the nation Democrats and half the nation Republicans, and they hate each other, speaking broadly. You know? So on, on Sunday, this group of people who are looking for the king welcome him in, and on Friday, those that are influenced by the Pharisees, a large crowd of them, you know, hundreds or thousands perhaps also, um, I don't see where the text of Scripture makes an exact identification between this crowd and that crowd. Are you with me? So I, I'm just cautious about you know, making that kind of statement that all of a sudden they, they became fickle and they turned against him. You know, there was a whole bunch of people in the city of Jerusalem that didn't want anything to do with God. They wanted to get rid of the Romans. They were nationalists. Uh, they were uh, legalists, they were Pharisees or Sadducees, they, didn't, they were liberals, they didn't believe in the resurrection, they just wanted to live their life and basically, you know, die and that's it. Um, we have a world full of that kind of thing yet today. But there's a great crowd, just like there should be for royalty. Second, they spread their clothes on the road. I think this is a symbol of I put worship in my notes, but maybe it's not worship as much as it is homage or respect. Uh, the king was worthy to trample upon their clothing because he was so much more worthy than you. I mean, can you do you do that for people? Like nobody throws their clothes on the aisle for anybody walking up and down the aisle in our church, you know. But if they were to do that, that's symbolizing something interesting. He's symbolizing humility. And they're symbolizing elevating him by allowing him to walk on top of clothing rather than merely on a dusty old road. Third, they cut down branches. Clothing could only stretch so far down the road. After a while, they didn't have any more outer garments to take off. There's, the crowd is a limited size, so they uh, did what they could to roll out the red carpet. See, that's the symbol we think of today, rolling out the red carpet. Well, that's what they were doing the multicolored carpet of all their clothing and the tree branches. What else did they do for him? Fourth, they verbalized their worship. They verbalized their worship and their respect for the king. 
they use the well-known words from Psalm 118, 25, and 26. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they use this phrase, Hosanna, two times here. The phrase, blessed rather, blessed is he who comes, is generally true and applicable to anyone at any time who comes in the name of the Lord especially true of Jesus himself. Now, the reason I say that is because I don't believe Psalm 118, 26 or 25 is a prediction of the coming of Jesus. It's a generic statement. And that generic statement is so appropriately applied here to Jesus because he does come in the name of the Lord. It's uh, used by the Jews. The statement is for their worship. And a well-educated Bible student would naturally use it any time a wonderful event is happening in which a blessed one of the Lord is coming uh, to them from God. And we ought to be ready to say that at any time too. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When? When the rapture happens. Blessed. You know, we might have a lot of loose ends that we haven't tied up in our life, but when he appears... Blessed is the name of the Lord. The blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We'll leave all the loose ends behind. God will take care of those, of those things. Or when he returns in Revelation 19, the world better, better be ready to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Another statement that I encourage you to have ready on the tip of your tongue is the statement of, of Job where he experienced great loss. And he said, The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Fix that in your mind because there will come a moment in your life when you lose a loved one, when something happens, and you're going to have to say, well, the Lord's taken away, but blessed be his name anyway. This statement of blessing, they bracket with two hosannas, one to the son of David, The other, in the highest, they say, so exceedingly high. The word Hosanna, I wish you could read Hebrew. Uh, It comes from how you say it this way. You say it, Hoshiyana in Hebrew, and it's based on the the verb yasha, which is to save. And it's it's a, you know, cause us to be saved now, please. It's really a call that you would say like this. You would say, save now or save us now, we pray. That word na at the end, hoshia na, is, is the word for like please or uh, it's a petition. It's a marker for a petition to, to God. Obviously, it's an entreaty to the Lord to deliver the people. Uh, and in the rest of the psalm, it's to give success or prosperity to them. And so there, it's not clear exactly, based on what this says, what kind of deliverance are they looking for? You know, we could, we could hope that it was spiritual deliverance, but maybe it was political de- deliverance. Maybe it was just, look, he's been healing all these people all the time, miracles, providing food for them. Maybe it's all of that all together in the crowd. Obviously, you know, many different ideas probably is many different people there were in the crowd. They recognized Jesus as the son of David. Remember somebody else we just looked at recently who recognized Jesus as the son of David? Anybody remember? Remember the blind men? 
The blind men, when they went into Jericho, and they said, what did they say? Look at the end of chapter 20 in uh, verse number 31. The multitude said to them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. The miracle-working Son of David, the one who is to be the king. Too bad the authorities didn't get it. The elites did not want it to be true. The working people and the lower classes were happy if it were true because it meant their deliverance was coming And in this case, they were far more well-informed than their leaders. They needed a bit of tuning up to recognize that Jesus was coming in humility to answer the request to save them not from the Romans but from from their sins, but will give them at least this, that they wanted the Son of David to save them. Hosanna to the Son of David, a great word of praise. Finally, the city was stirred up in verses 10 and 11. When Jesus got to the city, they had heard about the cries on his way in. Many were asking, who in the world is this fellow? Even though there was a large crowd of people who greeted Jesus, there were other large crowds of people in the city. Um, remember, this is coming up to, this is what we call it, Holy Week. This is coming up to Passover, so there's going to be a lot of pilgrim, pilgrims, as it were, coming in. Uh, people in the city, as you would expect, there was a whole bunch of them that were probably just plain old clueless. Others were haters. So those in the city were inquiring as to who it was that these people were talking about. And the welcoming committee, I think you could say, explained that it was Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. At least they recognized that he was a prophet. Join that to their descriptors that he's the son of David. He's the blessed one coming in the name of the Lord. They might not have fully understood who Jesus was, but they had a high view of him. They had a high view of him. I, I sometimes feel like uh, this with Christians. You know, it's hard for some t- sometimes for us to understand just how is it that the Son is related to the Father? How is Christ and the, and, the, and the Father connected in the doctrine of the Trinity and all that? You might not understand all of that, but you know this, that you have a very, you're supposed to have a very high view of who Christ is. In fact, so high that he is worthy of this kind of exaltation, this kind of worship. And we're going to see later on, on uh, Lord willing, on Sunday night, how he receives basically worship out of the mouths of young people who were in the temple. And he didn't shut them up. For if he had shut them up, then what? You know, even the stones would cry out before him. All of what we've looked at here is taking place on Palm Sunday. And it could even be specifically pinpointed to the date of Nisan the 9th in A.D. 30. How can we do that? Well, remember the prophecy in Daniel 9, 40, uh, Daniel 9, 24 to 26, 483 years after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, the uh, Messiah will be cut off so we can figure out with, quite pre- uh, with some precision as to when the Lord came Uh, into the city so we can speak with some more precision. But uh, given this, the the people should have known. Look, they knew something about a coming king. They knew he was going to come on a colt, on a foal of a donkey. They knew about roughly the time that he was going to come. They knew the purpose of his coming. They knew Isaiah 53. They should have. 
they should have been able to know that it was him. And they should have been expecting him and indeed rolled out the red carpet. Jesus says in Luke 19, 42, if only you had known this your day. Critical passage. Um, they, they, if they just had figured it out, if they had just paid attention, I think Daniel would have gotten it. Remember Daniel uh, says that he understood by the books the 70 years of Jerusalem, uh, of the captivity was almost complete. He knew from Jeremiah's prophecy. Well, if he had been given the kind of time that these people had, hundreds of years more, he could have probably also figured out the Messiah is about to show up. We better pay attention and roll out the red carpet when we see the son of David coming on a colt, the foal of a donkey, into the city of Jerusalem. They missed their opportunity, if only they had known. That's the message in Luke 19 there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us not to to, uh, miss the obvious when uh, you send a blessing and help into our lives and we ignore it. We don't know what it is. We, we don't have a high view of you. We, we think of other things or we, we just sit there and ask, who is this? And Lord, I pray that you would help us with that and help us to have that high view of Christ. And Lord, thank you that he came in humility and to demonstrate for us not only humility in our own character, but also that he was going to die for our sins and take that very lowly spot. We pray that you'll bless our understanding of this and help us to to walk with gratitude in our hearts because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, that's uh, my attempt at an explanation for that passage for you. So may God bless it. Hope you you have a good night. Those of you online, thank you for joining us. Um, And uh, if you're online and you're at all thinking, man, I should maybe visit that church You should, and we'd love to see you, so hope you will. God bless you. Have a good night. Amen.